Welcome to episode 153 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. And thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our guest, Matt Tate, who's the CEO and founder of Capital Alpha Security and uh, uh, many other things that we'll talk about when I... Uh, uh, get to the interview section of this uh, uh, podcast. Um, we've also got uh, Michael Vadis, uh, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office, uh, joining us after a substantial uh, period off. Uh, welcome, Michael. It's good to be back. I, you know, I really missed the, the podcast, so <laughs> I'm really happy to be back. <laughs> you don't have to sound as though that you're... Uh, 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 speaking after a long torture session in the, uh, 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 by the Viet Cong, but, uh, I do appreciate having you here. Uh, Maury Shank is here. It's not torture, it's just, it's just extreme betting. <laughs> exactly. Alright. Um, uh, Maury Shank, uh, uh, who was, uh, had been a managing partner in our London office and is an advisor on European technology and cybersecurity issues, as well as an investor and everything else, uh, is here from London. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker. Uh, formerly with the NSA and DHS, holding the record for returning to Steptoe uh, to practice law more times than any other lawyer. And uh, I'm kind of hoping we'll get Stephanie Roy, who's a partner in our telecom practice, uh, to come uh, talk, but uh, she's iffy right now. So why don't, we, why don't we just jump right in? I guess I should begin uh, on a, a sad note. Uh, Howard Schmidt... Uh, uh, who was the first uh, cybersecurity czar in the White House and uh, was a uh, cybersecurity uh, expert well before uh, joining the White House, has died. Uh, um, and uh, he was one of the most decent uh, guys in government. Um, uh, that's uh, it's rare, and, and it's sad to see his uh, de- uh, death. Um the big story that I couldn't uh, uh, ignore, of course, is the uh, the great Trump wiretap with two piece story. Uh, um, I I wrote kind of endlessly uh, trying to pour buckets of water on the most fevered responses to the uh, wiretap story. I'm not sure. I think all my buckets just evaporated in the flames. Uh, but uh, the president uh, on Saturday morning got up early and uh, said the uh, Obama wiretapped me. This is out- outrageous uh, and a scandal. Uh, uh, he uh, o- o- was almost certainly relying on first a Breitbart story and then the source of that Breitbart story, which was a bunch of BBC, Guardian, and other stories uh, um, in which uh, um, FISA uh, warrants against uh, members of the Trump campaign or people influencing the Trump campaign were uh, uh, alleged to have been sought and in some case grant- cases granted. Um, a- and the media on this has just been flipping out but I think the interesting point from a uh, cyber law point of view is um, that the FISA procedures have suddenly become really uh, hot. Uh, um, and, and so we're getting a, a lesson in whether the president can order a wiretap or not. Answer, no, he can't. Uh, um, uh, whether a, a FISA order is only going to be a wiretap or could just be a request for records? Answer, could be just a request for records. Uh, uh, my sense on this, and I don't know, um, uh, Michael, I'll invite you to uh, express a view, is that 
um, both sides of this debate have turned it into a, an incredible uh, uh, melee um, uh, when, in fact, it's quite possible that uh, everything that ha- happened here has a reasonable uh, and nonpartisan explanation. Well, the thing that's so, so bizarre to me is that uh, Trump has boxed himself into a corner with this with this crazy series of, of tweets because he's he's either um, you know lashing out based on a, on an unfounded uh, article that he read in Breitbart early in the morning before anybody else was awake um, that has really zero credible basis because the people who study this stuff and have the best sources have have found nothing about uh, wiretapping uh, in Trump Tower or Trump himself uh, or, or anyone you know close to him. Um, or uh, if there actually is a basis for it, it means a federal judge has found that there's probable cause to believe either Trump or his close associates are committing a crime, giving rise to a Title III wiretap, or that one of them is an agent of a foreign power, giving rise, to, uh, you know, authorizing a, a FISA wiretap. Either way, Trump is, you know, looks incredibly bad. So, you know, there, there are two theories for why he would do this. Either he really is as unstable as he appears and he can't resist lashing out and he actually believes the crap he reads on Breitbart, or he's doing this very purposely to distract attention from, you know, the steady drumbeat of Russia allegations uh, and connections of, of his campaign and of his senior officials to uh, Russia and possible Russian intelligence operations against the U.S., both of those explanations also make him look terribly bad. So, you know, just yeah, I'm I, Trump I, I, I'm I'm more uh, uh, charitable about this. Uh, I don't think the, uh, the wiretap story was unsupported, and 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 that uh, invoking Breitbart as though it was proof that uh, it can't be true is uh, a good strategy. The BBC, the Guardian, uh, it's hardly uh, proof speech. it is true. No, I, I, I think there are there are plausible stories that say there were wiretap orders uh, uh, or FISA orders uh, uh, sought and obtained in connection with the Trump-Russia connection. I, you know, the New York Times, when they thought that that was a good thing for it to be saying and for the Democrats to be saying, uh, ran out with a story saying, oh, there's all kinds of intercepts going on here involving Trump and Russia. Um, so uh, it's not unreasonable for the president to say, hey, I want to know whether any of that was politically motivated. Uh, and and for the president, uh, for, for uh, former President Obama to say, well, I didn't order it. So that should end it uh, when, in fact, it was Sally Yates who probably signed the order, which I don't think is likely to offer much comfort to anybody at the, uh, at the Trump White House. Uh, I think it's fair to say, uh, look, I'm very concerned about this. All he's got is these stories, and he can't ask for more because he'd be asking to be briefed on an investigation that uh, might touch on people he knows. So he's really in an, in an awkward spot, uh, and my sense is... The, he, he's, he's right to ask the question. In. Yeah, he put himself well, there, but I, at the same time, it is fair to ask how much politics was involved in the decision to pursue these investigations uh, or to uh, leak information about them, and we uh, we don't know, and it's fair to uh, to pursue that. Uh, it's very fair to pursue it. There's, there should be a special counsel to pursue uh, Trump's uh, ties to Russia. 
Absolutely, and I'm glad the president appears now to support that. Yeah, I know. He, well, I think he's stuck with it, uh, and what he's really saying. And by the way, why don't we toss in the question of whether the uh, the FISA process was uh, used inappropriately for partisan ends? And then we'll get the answer. Okay, uh, uh, plenty more to come, I'm sure. Uh, so the. Uh, uh, the Microsoft uh, theory that uh, uh, it isn't possible to uh, uh, use a warrant to get information that's located outside the United States under the Stored Communications Act uh, has taken another um, beating at the hands of a magistrate. Not a very elaborate beating, but uh, um, after winning one in the Second Circuit, they've now, what, lost two, right? Uh, yeah, two, uh, two at the district court level. So yeah, the uh, the short answer is um, this debate is not over. The four-four split in the Second Circuit just means we're going to see more splits in both directions over the question of when you can use a Stored Communications Act warrant to get access to information stored in the cloud. It was Yahoo and Google, I think, that were part of this latest case. Yes. Yeah. So you know, you would think that this would give. This, this uh, continuing split in the courts would, would give some impetus to legislation uh, that was introduced in the last Congress um, to uh, amend the Stored Communications Act to, to address this issue and make it clear when a warrant might apply to uh, content stored abroad and when it might not. Um, but, you know, there's been no sign that, that that legislation is going anywhere, so it seems like uh, our... Legislators are content at this point, at least, to let the courts try to, to hash it out. Um, yeah, which is, which is unfortunate. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Senate, which is going to get a industry-favored bill and a civil liberties group-favored bill about imposing warrant requirements on all email content, uh, to say, okay, well, that's what you want, and here's some stuff that we want for law enforcement purposes to clarify the law, um, and. That will produce a logjam in the Senate for a while, and then at some point somebody will say, I have to have this, and we'll make a modest concession, and all of it will roll through the Senate and be adopted. That's my guess. All right. Well, now let's turn to the serious uh, news. Um, teddy bears are being connected to the Internet and not long thereafter hacked, um, uh, revealing the contents of uh, the babblings of four-year-olds everywhere in the world. Uh, um, Maury, did you follow this story? Since you, you introduced us to Kayla the Talking Doll uh, as contraband in Germany, uh, I thought you, uh, you ought to take this one as well. Yeah, well, that's why I got interested in this story. So there were some serious legal issues we talked about. Uh, about Kayla last week. I don't think there's much of an issue about these talking pets uh, legally, but we were discussing, you know, why do we care about uh, what Kayla could record? And it turns out that a company called Spiral Toys has a cloud pets brand where they had a database of 800,000 user account credentials and 2 million recorded messages between apparently parents and their kids, and this database was completely unsecured on the Internet. And it was locked up by some hackers and, but with ransomware and then unlocked and apparently locked again or something like that. The company claims no data was disclosed, but it, it kind of illustrates that these toys have some important data out there and that's why the Germans cared about Kayla 
and maybe the rest of us should be careful before we buy one of the cloud pets. Um, I'm guessing that if you actually tried to listen to all those uh, things, you would be a diabetic before you got through the first hour. Uh, uh, sweetie, sweetie, lovey-dovey uh, messages from everybody. Uh, 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 so I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that it's the end of the world, but, you know, uh, parents of uh, two-year-olds and three-year-olds and four-year-olds uh, uh, tend to be very protective. So I'm sure this is going to be a scandal for quite a while. Uh, uh, let me ask you about this. There's a, a paper out. Uh, I know you do a lot of work with China. There's a paper out that talks about the 50-cent army and the people who do uh, um, all the government paid for tweeting or WeChatting uh, or Weiboing uh, uh, in China. Uh, and uh, uh, we've always assumed that... Uh, the Chinese 50 cent army was sort of like the, uh, uh, the Russian approach where the Russians seem to specialize in paid trolling and, and trashing, uh, the comment section of stories they don't like. Uh, um, uh, but it turns out on, uh, looking at this paper that that's a, that's very different from what the Chinese are paying their army of blogger tweeters to do. Yeah, I love this paper. It's from a team, a joint team from Harvard, Stanford, and UCSD, and they use uh, big data analysis and some uh, statistical and some lightweight AI to look at an archive that was leaked from Jiangong, um, which is an area of Ganzhou City in Jiangxi province. And they figured out that these um, there's lots of this posting, but... The prediction, or the claim was that these uh, people were doing taunting of foreign countries and what they called argumentative praise or criticism. And it turns out there's practically none of that. The biggest category, which is 50-60% of it, is cheerleading for China, like isn't the socialist state great and um, 50 years of socialism uh, and things like that. And then the other two categories that are big are factual reporting and non-argumentative praise. And, And apparently... There is um, central direction that gets these people to, to tweet and make other postings, about $450 million a year, at times when they're worried about collective action and basically try to drown it out in a sea of, uh, of PAP. Yeah, $450 million, uh, $450 million tweets at a nickel a pop, which is about what they, they go for, uh, is, is pretty cheap for the, uh, uh, for the central government. But you can see how if you're going to do central government-directed tweeting, it's much easier to say, here's the message of the day, you know, long live our dear leader, uh, rather than uh, uh, go attack these 16 people. Yeah, and the evidence suggests that engaging with negativity doesn't help that much. Um, and it, it really is cheap because the other thing they figured out is a lot of these people are people who do this as part of their government jobs and aren't being paid for it anyhow. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I'm I'm very interested in this because I you know as the Russian uh um interference in the election and the Chinese uh, uh hacking of uh, some of our uh, um uh, some of our databases about people suggests um the tools that they use to control their own populations, they're going to end up trying to use to control ours. Uh, and so uh, um, I guess what that means is we should look for a host of uh, uh, 
tweets praising whatever policy the Chinese government uh, uh, endorses, uh, um, which actually wouldn't be all that different from the tweets I get anyway. Well, uh, what they would probably do to be uh, serious about this is if there is a time when a bad, uh, when there is tension between the U.S. and China, they would look to drown that out with other messages. Now, that will be more difficult for them on Facebook or Twitter than it is on uh, Weibo or, or other, um, you know, Chinese social media where they have lots of people on it. But that's the kind of thing we might look out for. Yep. Okay, a last story. Uh, the fight over that people are busily preparing the battlefield uh, for a fight over 702 reauthorization. This is the, uh, um, the provision of law that allows the uh, uh, government to conduct surveillance of communications that have one end in the United States and one end outside as long as they're targeting foreigners. They can go to uh, uh, American suppliers of social media and uh, uh, webmail and say, we'd like to see the communications uh, to and from this particular terrorist. Uh, uh, and uh, the uh, opponents of this have said, yeah, but if it's to and from the United States, there's a good chance that some of that mail is Americans sending uh, emails to the terrorist, and uh, we want to know how many Americans are being uh, surveilled. We want to put restrictions on the ability to search for American communications after these uh, communications have been collected for uh, legal purposes. We don't want them used to investigate Americans. Uh, and uh, uh, that that showed up in a couple of ways. Uh, uh, the lawmakers who would hate this program or want to uh, uh, cut it back in some way uh, uh, have insisted when the uh, director of national intelligence candidate, Dan Coates, came through that they wanted the answer to how many Americans had their communications in these uh, intercepted these these pools of intercepted data. Um, that's hard to get because you'd have to go in and actually identify Americans in uh, and and figure out who's an American in a an intercept that you're actually not in, where you're not actually interested in the person uh, who's on the U.S. side. Uh, so it's been a long-standing request. Probably because one, it's hard to do, and two, it'll probably be a big number because uh, you know uh, half of all those communications are likely to have some U.S. connection. I mean, I'll jump in on this yep. from a European perspective, Stuart. Is that you know, the European there's there's been a letter from a bunch of European privacy organizations, uh, sorry, uh, European privacy organizations to the um, the European Commissioner Jarova saying, you know, back away from the privacy shield because of this. And we're talking about wiretapping of, uh, you know, worried about wiretapping of Americans. Uh, Europeans are worried in the 702 authorization process that foreigners don't get treated as well. And I think that's a non-trivial point because in Europe, privacy law applies equally to anybody 
who's here. Yeah, fair enough. Although then now that they've uh, adopted the Judicial Redress Act, they can have the same uh, meaningless and useful, useless uh, uh, Privacy Act rights that Americans have uh, um, if they if they continue to uh, stay out of the way of U.S. intelligence collection. Uh, it was not just Europeans. I I thought it was interesting that there were a bunch of American company, uh, uh, NGOs that were willing to say, "Yeah, we don't care about American." security programs, and we don't care about American tech companies that need to move data. We care more about uh, the privacy of uh, of Europeans than either of those things. Uh, so EFF, uh, um, I've forgotten now, Access Now maybe, uh, well, I guess that's European. But EFF is clearly American and clearly sided with a different government than ours on this stuff, uh, really scoring points on its own government uh, in a way that'll that'll hurt our t- uh, terrorism programs. Um, and uh, it looks like this administration is going to want to try to defend the privacy shield, at least Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary uh, uh, designate uh, in his hearings uh, endorsed the privacy shield. So um, we may be in for yet another administration in which uh, uh, all we get is grumbling over the European determination to uh, hold our uh, uh, our data hostage and nothing much gets done about it. But we'll see. Okay. Uh, anything else? Uh, if not, I want to turn to uh, our interview with Matt Tate. Uh, Matt, as I said, is the CEO and founder of Capital Alpha Security, which is a security consultancy. Um, but uh, 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 Matt's other claims to fame are he's pwned all the things uh, on Twitter, uh, a well-regarded uh, uh, and uh, prolific tweeter. Uh, he uh, used to work at uh, GCHQ, which was the... Uh, uh, NSA equivalent uh, at, in, in the UK, uh, and probably now more powerful in uh, the UK than NSA is in the United States, because they survived the Snowden uh, um, leaks better than NSA did. Uh, uh, and he has um, frequently commented on uh, some of the issues involving Russia uh, and um, uh, the, their... Um, Use of um, hacking to achieve state ends. Uh, so what I was hoping to talk to him about um, is uh, uh, what the Russian hacking establishment looks like, what they're trying to do, um, how they've evolved over the years. So, Matt, that's that's what I'd like to talk about uh, that, that, that is a broad question. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, okay, let me, let me give you a, 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 a simple one. Fancy Bear, Cozy Bear, uh, APT29, these are names for organizations we know by better names. Uh, one of them is the GRU, and one of them, as I gather, is the FSB. Is that right? Uh, yeah, so Fancy Bear is, is, uh, or APT28, I suppose, is their, their more famous name, is um, uh, GRU, the, the Russian military intelligence uh, 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 digital hacking team. Um, uh, Cozy Bear, or APT29, is uh, more commonly associated with uh, uh, FSB and, and uh, FDR. So that's uh, what, on the other uh, side of the house. That, that was my first question. Is FSB's, 
I think of as kind of a domestic sur- surveillance organization. Um, and, uh, it was, and there is an, there is a foreign intelligence, uh, arm, uh, uh, in the Russian state, and that's the SVR that you never hear about in this context. Uh, uh, what goes, what gives there? Yeah, so basically the, the problem is that, um, when, when people do attribution, they're often doing attribution from the basis of, uh, uh, looking at the various pieces of uh, digital evidence, uh, uh, the malware, looking at the command and control servers and so on. And the problem is that FBR and FSB look very similar. They uh, uh, share much more information than they share with their Russian, uh, with their, their uh, military intelligence counterparts. And consequently, you, you end up with lots of misattributions between the FBR operations and the FSB operations because they, they look much more technically similar. Oh. That's one of the reasons. Okay, so so we should call SVR Sneaky Bear. <laughs> Perhaps, yes. <laughs> so the, the, you, you, your 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 assumption is SVR is doing this. They just uh, oh certainly, it, it, and 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 they are doing it uh, using a lot of techniques borrowed or shared with FSB, which would make sense. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, and we may never know, and really, who cares? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 they're both the Russian government at the end of the day. I mean, there's perhaps, you know, uh, uh, for intelligence agencies, it's perhaps a useful distinction. But for most people, it's not a particularly useful distinction. So what do you think, as between the GRU, which is the military intelligence unit, and the FSB SVR, who's better? Um, so I... I the SVR is certainly better, um, but GRU is very, very prolific. They, they really, you know, don't seem to care that much that they get caught all the time. Um, and they have, you know, a very, very wide range of targets. And, you know, uh, I, I suppose there's a question as to whether or not they're, uh, uh, they, they appear much more prolific because they get caught so much more often. But mm-hmm. the, 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 when you look at uh, the, the GRU operations across the world, it really is, you know, lighting up the whole map. Sort of like the PLA used to do. Yeah, I mean, at, at similar sorts of scale. Yeah, and and I wonder, uh, it it used to be that you never saw the Russians coming. They they were in our systems, uh, we believe, for a long time. We didn't know they were there. They were exfiltrating data, you know, low and slow, and uh, um, we, uh, they were really spooky. They uh, uh, they were the uh, the black-clad cat burglars of cyberspace. Uh, and now they get caught all the time. Uh, uh, did they make a decision they didn't care about getting caught by after after watching what the PLA was able to get uh, just by smashing in the window and grabbing stuff? Well, I think it's a combination of two things. I think, first of all, um, the, the private sector has got better at catching uh, uh, malware on people's systems. Um, it used to be the case that really... The, the malware had to be incredibly intrusive, you know, uh, uh, making laptops completely unable to run or actually, you know, doing something with the documents or putting ransomware or having pop-ups before anybody would sort of pay attention and realize that, hey, there's malware on this machine. Mm-hmm. Now the private sector is, is much better at uh, catching, you know, uh, uh, these groups. And so um, there's the, the certainly um, less space to hide than there used to be. Um, but I think that you're right. There's also been a conscious decision that uh, uh, OPSEC is, you know, great when there's, you know, a really significant cost to being caught. When there's, you know, almost zero cost to being caught, what's the point of hiding? 
Um, you know, you couldn't just attack every single bank and every single defense establishment and every single, uh, um, you know, journalist organization. Um, because in the event that you get caught on, you know, 2% of those, who cares? You've got the other 98%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 I, I think the the Chinese have really changed the game by their utterly shameless uh, 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 spewing of kind of crappy cyber intrusion tools uh, uh, because it worked. Uh, and uh, and you know, yes, there've been a few indictments. Uh, uh, the FSB was the subject of sanctions. That'll that'll I'm sure put the fear of God in them. Uh, but basically, there hasn't been much of a problem uh, for them. Yes, ultimately, the the value that they derive from you know successfully hacking an organization is large, and the cost in the event they get caught is pretty small. And there's a pretty solid chance that they won't get caught anyway. So when you just do the calculus of it, of course, you're just going to be really aggressive. And you know, our our inability to sort of push back strongly against uh, some of these hacking organizations, not just in you know, against Russia, but, you know, across the spectrum, this is what has led to this calculus. Yeah. So, uh, I wonder if that's really true, though, because uh, there's, there's some signs of strain uh, or something weird happening in the intelligence community of uh, the Russian government. Uh, uh, my favorite was there's this convocation of spies. This guy is there, you know, holding forth along with all the other spies, and people walked up to him, stick a bag over his head, handcuff him, and frog march him out of the uh, the meeting, and then charge him with I think treason. Um, uh, and you know, you don't do that unless you're trying to send a message uh, and you don't try to send a message unless you've got no better way to send the message which suggests a, a certain amount of breakdown in discipline uh, what do you make of of these treason accusations tied to cybersecurity companies and the like um so yeah i, I, I presume you're you're referring to the the, the 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 arrest that happened in sort of late 2016 yes and these uh um, basically, this was right at sort of the, the, the height of uh, uh, everybody talking about the DNC uh, uh, breach, and you start to see at this point that you know people, especially in the US, uh, are really being very cavalier about the information that they're putting into the public domain. Mm-hmm. And we see things like uh, this uh, dossier by uh, uh, Chris Steele being put into the public domain. We have you know uh, 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 anonymous leaks saying you know. Uh, uh, what various uh, uh, bits of intelligence have uh, uh, been reported and where they're coming from. And it's at that sort of point that you start to see, you know, a, a real upsurge in the number of arrests. And, you know, it's possible that this is simply uh, 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 Russia sort of, you know, tying down, you know, loose ends. It's possible that it's, you know, uh, a structural changes internally. It's possible that uh, uh, they're panicking about, uh, uh, the U.S. becoming much more Russophobic and then, you know, trying to clamp down on that. But it's also possible that there was significant substantive leaks that led to, uh, 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 you know, covert sources being discovered and those, you know, accesses being wound up. Yeah, I, I think that that would be plausible that uh, in uh, the uh, very high stakes battle of leaks uh, it, uh, meant to uh, put the 
uh, incoming Trump administration on their back foot or to defend the, the administration if there were such leaks, uh, uh, that um, uh, the Russians realized just how much information um, the U.S. government had on how they operate and who's doing what there, uh, and that they uh, took advantage of this uh, uh, to... Uh, weed out people who had had been leaking. Uh, if that's the case, then uh, I don't know what this uh, uh, election operation becomes. Not a twofer, maybe a threefer or a fourfer. Right? Uh, they get to they get to uh, defeat Hillary Clinton. They get uh, a shot at uh, Donald Trump and a, another reset. Uh, and they get to find out everything we know about their cyber operations uh, I, uh, because we're too busy leaking on each other to uh, to exercise any discipline. Yeah, I mean, maybe not all of the information, but, you know, uh, there's a sort of, you know, constant myth that when you reveal what you know without revealing how you know it, that somehow this is safe. Yes. And actually, you know, there's lots of people out there who are able to work backwards from, hey, you know that, so I can work out how you know it. And, you know, that's the point where sources and actresses start disappearing, both in the, the human intelligence space and in the, the signals intelligence space. So the, you, you mentioned this uh, Chris Steele dossier. This is the one that had uh, Trump involved in uh, what I guess I can call a whole host of <laughs> other uh, very um, uh, dodgy uh, claims. Uh, but, very exciting claims. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> they are high, highly cinematic. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> And and not entirely um, uh, discredited. That is to say, Steele is thought to be a perfectly respectable investigator who had a good career at MI6. Uh, uh, and some, you know, the rumors are that some of the stuff that's in that dossier has been uh, confirmed. Maybe not the most uh, uh, egregious stuff, but some of it. Uh, um, a, that was not none of that was cyber related as far as I could tell. He's a good old fashioned shoe leather spy, isn't he? Absolutely. Uh yeah, I mean um I, I don't know Chris, you know, uh, uh personally I, I know of people who speak very, very highly of him. Um uh you know, I, I, I think, you know, lots of attacks have been laid against him which are, are very unfair. Um but I, I think the thing to bear in mind is that the the the, the documents that, that came out were a series of different memos. Um he is reporting what people said to him. And, you know, as, as you well know, um, there is a really big difference between raw human intelligence that comes in of, I spoke to this source, he is interestingly placed, he said this interesting thing to me, versus analytic product that you would see, you know, going to a policymaker's desk, right. which would be, you know, multiple sources have said this and we've checked it and, you know, it seems to be, you know, uh, 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 plausible or, you know, it seems to be confirmed or it seems to be, you know, uh, 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 something that we know with very high confidence. You know, you end up with these sort of confidence levels inside intelligence agencies as to how much you trust a particular claim based on having multiple sources. And what Chris Steele's dossier is, is, is not that. It's not this uh, sort of end product of, you know, multi-source confirmed uh, confidence level attached uh, uh, end product. It is a series of statements that were made to him by people that were interestingly placed. Yeah, it's I I, I envision it as sort of a, a, a modest window into how MI6 reports read before they've 
been through an analytic process. Uh, yeah, so th- th- this is the type of war intelligence that you would expect coming back to a desk officer, and you would expect the desk officer to consume that along with, you know, signals intelligence, along with, you know, other assets, you know, different views, uh, uh, and, and they would come to a big picture and they would then compress that down into uh, 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 some analysis. And actually, one of the things that, you know, you really don't want people out in the field to do is to do this on their own. You don't want them to be making their own assessments as to how credible, uh, uh, you know, pieces of information are, because then you can end up with biases sort of coming in very, very early on in the protest. Yeah. So what you really want them to do is to just say, I spoke to this guy, this is what he said, and then allow the desk officer to make the assessments as to whether or not it's credible. That makes that makes sense to me, uh, which means that uh, he's he's really trying not to editorialize. That these are and and obviously there are plenty of people uh, that he would talk to who have an interest in bragging, maybe completely without basis, or repeating rumors that make them look uh, or their agency look good. Uh, so there's a there's a lot of possibility here uh, uh, for this information to be exaggerated or wrong. Uh, I suppose it's also uh, possible that uh, the release of this information was sufficient for the Russians to say, oh, so now we know who Chris Steele's commercial uh, sources are. Let's, you know, uh, wind them up. Yeah, and bear in mind that the types of people who might be willing to speak to a private sector PI might also be the types of people willing to speak to, you know, uh, uh, government agencies and be similar you know, uh, uh, similarly placed. So rounding up uh, private investigators' uh, 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 sources might actually impact, you know, classified sources as well. Yes. And I think one of, one of the other things that I think often gets missed is that someone who is, you know, exceptionally talented within the intelligence agencies has an enormous apparatus behind them to, you know, enable them to uh, uh, get invited to the right parties to meet the right sources, to, you know... Uh, 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 you know, make sure that they're not sort of getting, you know, uh, 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 stuck going down a rabbit hole. Um, in the event that this guy had then left and then gone to the private sector, um, obviously he's going to need to cultivate new sources from scratch without having all of this, you know, massive intelligence apparatus behind him, which means that it's, you know, it, it, it's true that he was, you know, uh, uh, very well regarded inside the intelligence agencies, that doesn't necessarily translate into the private sector in the way that I think lots of people assume it does. So the, 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 the most interesting thing that happened in 2016 in terms of Russian intelligence, at least to my mind, is that they found a new use for um, uh, their hacking tools. I, I, I guess I should say I, I once went to a, a dinner uh, that was a cross-Tasman dinner in which there were Kiwis from New Zealand and uh, uh, Aussies uh, giving speeches that were increasingly um, uh, alcohol-fueled uh, and increasingly <laughs> ribald, which you know, doesn't take long down there. Uh, and uh, at one point, one of the uh, Aussies stood up, and this was mixed company, and said, I'd like to raise a toast to the Kiwis who found an entirely new use for sheep. There's this dead silence into which he says, Whoa! Um, so I, the, um, uh, the 
Russians have found a new use for all their hacked information, which is to uh, release it and cause consequences in the target country. Uh, and I wondered, can we tell anything from shadow brokers or Guccifer 2.0 or DC Docs, uh, or for that matter, WikiLeaks, that, that tells us something about which of these guys is doing this? Is it the GRU? Is it the FSB, SBR? Uh, uh, and uh, uh, should we be expecting them to keep doing this uh, if it has produced the kind of turmoil in the United States that it has? Well, it's interesting that you, you say that because when, you know, uh, uh, CrowdStrike and, and uh, the Washington Post came out and said, you know, we discovered uh, Russian malware on our, uh, you know, on the DNC network, um, uh, my first response, and actually, you know, several people that I know's first response was, wow, that's really boring, right? You know, uh, 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 Russia hacking a, a U.S. political organization, when did that start? Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, the bit that was interesting, the bit where I started to, you know, suddenly sit up and pay attention was when they started leaking these documents, because that's something that's very unusual, at least, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, Russia does it quite a lot against, you know, countries within the Russian sphere of influence. I mean, they did it, you know, substantially against, you know, Georgia, against Ukraine, but they, they generally have, you know, not done it against the West. And suddenly seeing this happen uh, in, in the U.S., you know, was something that made me really sit up and, and think, this is something different. And, you know, uh, this is it's a much more sort of Soviet-type, operation rather than, you know, it's something that you don't really expect the modern Russian intelligence services to be deploying against the West. And that was something that is just very unusual. Yeah, I, I but, you know, it, it, they had, uh, there are persistent rumors that they were behind that East Anglia climate gate uh, uh, hack. We've never figured out who did that, but it apparently served Russia's diplomatic interests around uh, climate negotiations. So uh, th- they may have been creeping right, but up I mean, on that, 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 that's You know, that, that, that's a different, you know, kettle of fish. That's, a, you know, a, a, an attack on negotiations. That's not an attack on the electoral process. It's not an attack on... You know, it's, it's not a disinformation campaign directed against the public in the same sort of way. And so while it might have, you know, very similar approaches, the, the, the thing that I think is really interesting is suddenly they're switched to saying it's okay to target this, you know, uh, electoral process in the West when before they were saying this is not something that we would ever do. So I assume Putin has to say that's okay uh, and that he would say it with enthusiasm because he likes tweaking the West uh, and doing to the West what he thinks they did to him. Uh, my guess this is all him working out his bitterness over the December 2011 uh, um, demonstrations when the U.S. was supporting people who wanted him out or at least wanted elections that were fair. Uh, and he has stored up that resentment for years and is playing it out against us uh, uh, in the last year or two. Yeah, it's quite possible. And actually, it's, it's interesting that you were talking about um, uh, whether or not we can trust the veracity of these documents. Because uh, one of the very first things that I was interested in with the sort of release of these documents was, have they been tampered with? Can we prove whether or not they've been tampered with? And so, you know, lots of uh, uh, my original, you know, lots of media agencies sort of picked them up because they, they found, you know, uh, traces of it being, you know, uh, uh, Russian language settings and so on. The reason I was looking at 
uh, all of those was not to discover, you know, uh, whether or not the, the computers were configured in Russian or whether they had Russian language keyboards. That wasn't particularly interesting to me, other than that it was amusing that they had screwed up. <laughs> what I was really looking for at the time was, can we discover where they've added a paragraph or where they've deleted a page? Because that would be the really interesting, you know, uh, uh, changes. And that's what I was looking for originally. And as they've improved their game, it's become very difficult to work out uh, uh, if they've made changes. With some of the releases, you can come to very strong conclusions that they haven't doctored uh, uh, specific pages. So with the John Podesta emails, a lot of the, the John Podesta emails are digitally signed by Google. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to say with you know pretty strong confidence that those particular emails were not emails that were doctored by Russian intelligence, or in the event that it was doctored by Russian intelligence, they have you know much greater access into Google than you know anybody you know uh, I would think that they would blow on such an operation. Right. So um, I, I did see um, there was a, a, a they they had stolen a bunch of Soros documents that they released, and they got caught releasing the originals on DC Docs and re- releasing a doctored version of his uh, uh, budget document that included a, a, a particular Russian NGO that they wanted to discredit as a Soros front, and they didn't have any evidence, so they just made it up and stuck it into a document that they claimed was a Soros document. So it's exactly the same document with one line added for funding this uh, Russian NGO. Yeah, and, and they, they were released by different groups. One was DC Leaks, the other one was Cyber Burkut, which is, uh, 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 the front is that this is a, a Ukrainian hacking group, but it, it's, you know, been very strongly tied back to APQ28, which is the same hacking group. Yeah, um, so we're going to see this for sure, more of that. Uh, uh, so if you want people to uh, to know uh, when when your documents are leaked by the Russians that it really was something you said, uh, be sure to use those uh, digital signatures. Uh, uh, okay, uh, I, I, a couple other questions. Um, we've been talking for years now about cyber attacks and cyber intelligence and the Russians come in and the Chinese come in and NSA and GCHQ come in uh, and Israel comes in, uh, Unit 8200 gets, gets mentioned. It's been years since I heard any mention of the French. Uh, and I wonder, you know, uh, speaking as a former friendly rival, uh, uh, have they lost their mojo? Uh, I don't think so. I think that they've got better at uh, uh, not getting caught. I think they, uh-huh. they've been a little bit more careful. Um, they're still a big budget agency. They still have, uh, uh, you know, uh, very sophisticated capabilities. I, I think um, one of the problems in, in cybersecurity as well is that, that there is, you know, a tendency for people to uh, 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 misattribute at the sort of the lower layers of uh, uh, hacking. So it's it's quite difficult to work out when if you don't have very many malware samples it's very difficult to work out uh, uh, which group the thing belongs to okay. and so I think with France there, there's a, a tendency I think for people to uh, 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 sort of under attribute to them okay well that's it. so it, uh, DGSE last of the cyber uh, ninjas uh, <laughs> impressive uh, uh, okay um, uh, I'll give you uh, uh, an opportunity if you've got some speeches or papers that you want to uh, 
uh, uh, foreshadow for the audience? Uh, anything that uh, uh, our listeners might be interested in reading or seeing that you're going to be producing soon? Uh, not imminently. Okay. Uh, and uh, you're welcome to, uh, you know, I, I, I did say GCHQ. Uh, uh, has done a much better job of surviving Snowden than uh, uh, NSA did. Uh, what's your one-minute uh, reason for that? I, I think they were better at not uh, uh, at deploying neither confirm nor deny across the board to everything. Um, I think the U.S. had a tendency of using uh, uh, neither confirm nor deny only when they meant deny. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably right. Uh, more discipline, and they could have more discipline because they had more, frankly, support at high levels of government, uh, is my sense. Uh, well, Matt Tate, thank you so much for this. This was a great dive into uh, uh, Russian hacking and intelligence collection. Uh, um, as always, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Send us your questions, your suggestions for interview candidates or topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, go to uh, iTunes and leave us a, uh, a good review, if only because it makes Tim Cook weep when you do. Uh, this has been episode 153 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, be sure to send us those suggestions for interview uh, candidates because if we bring somebody on that you suggested, we promise to send you a uh, uh, immensely valuable Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast uh, mug for your coffee, complete with logo. Uh, coming up, uh, we're going to have two of the deans of information assurance from NSA, Kurt Dukes and Tony Sager, now with the Center for Internet Security, and we're going to ask them not what is the most sophisticated uh, cybersecurity you can deploy, but what do you tell your mom when she asks what she should be doing. Uh, so uh, uh, for everybody who's gotten that question, this is your chance to find out what the, the real pros are saying. Uh, uh, Michael Daniel, uh, formerly the cyber czar uh, under President Obama, will be uh, on with us as well. And we hope you'll join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 